Well, I, I don't want to let uh, Ahmed al-Shahi take the uh, prize for uh, time spent researching Sudan. He said 50 years. Um, I think he and I the other night decided that I'd actually been there a few months longer. Um, <laughs> on July 1st, I'll be celebrating the 50th year anniversary of uh, residence and, uh, and research in Sudan. <coughs> Consider it my, uh, my second home uh, by a long way. Well, genocide, war crimes, and two Sudans. Can there be reconciliation? Um, can that be my cell phone? I don't know. <laughs> uh, events in Sudan are changing more rapidly than Sudanese and we Sudanese can analyze them. Can't keep up with them, actually. Daily, daily changes. Writing three papers because I'm visiting this week, and this is my third presentation. Uh, I was telling you that writing three papers at one time, all about Sudan and generally related uh, issues was a, was a challenge to me, especially as things kept changing on a daily basis. Um, but for the purposes of the arguments of this paper, I want to start with uh, March 4, 2009, when the uh, International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for uh, President Bashir, as we know, the first sitting president to be indicted by the ICC that has its own uh, problems. The warrant included seven counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity in Darfur, stopping just short of uh, charging genocide, which in and of itself is very interesting. The ruling by the ICC ignited um, a round of debates about war crimes, international law, and genocide related to Sudan's various conflicts. Nearly every pundit, uh, scholar, activist, diplomat, journalist, and international organization uh, reacted to the indictment. The range of the points of view is extensive. One of the most controversial voices in the Darfur and genocide debates has been Mahmoud Mandani, uh, who vehemently critiques various international organizations and journalists for stirring up antagonisms toward Northern Sudan, i.e. Arabs. Uh, he accuses them of exaggerating the number of casualties and engaging in what he calls the politics of naming. In other words, using the term genocide carelessly and with malevolent intent. To capture some of the, this rancor, discord, and conflicts around these issues, Laura Ben, who's uh, in the law school at the University of Michigan, herself, uh, part Southern Sudanese, and I have co-edited a book, which is now finished, uh, not out, but finished, called Sudan's Killing Fields, Perspectives on Genocide. We've just barely touched the surface of the debates that have been stirred by the ICC ruling and now have been reignited by the inevitable vote for uh, secession for this paper uh, before we began to uh, hear some of the votes. Um, Many of these debates about genocide and genocidal violence have been in progress for years and underscore the complexities of views on Sudan's post-independence killing fields. In the book, we've entered the fray. The concept of genocide, if not central to all of the essays in this book, is, however, a, a subtext for all of them. Not everyone, you, not all of our 
um, contributors use the word. In fact, most of them actually don't. This is forcing an issue for which Sedan studies, in general, has not shown a propensity to deal with, especially those who work on women's Sedan. However, recently, many scholars have been drawn into the genocide debates, despite uh, previous reluctance. I'm actually one of those. The reluctance stems from, or I've given five reasons for this reluctance to actually engage with the concept of, of genocide. Um, the refusal, actually, to engage um, in the debates by, by many. First is the recognition that genocide is an unpopular subject with the Islamist government, so it can affect one's career and research and so on. Uh, the second is the fact that studies of northern Sudan dominate Sudan's scholarship. And these are often people hesitant to view Sudan's civil wars through a genocidal lens. The third is the lack of access to marginalized areas and therefore ignorance of the, of the subject, that is, people who've not been able to get into the south and, and so on. I'm one of those. Every time I went to Sudan, something had closed it off. Um, from, from the time of the boot with the Closed Districts Act until um, relatively, until the, the CPA, I was unable um, to get to the south unless I went through uh, Kenya and Uganda uh, illegally. Um, four, the reluctance to incite more tension among various ethnic groups and regions through one's scholarship, in other words, by actually naming it genocide. And five, the sort of subtle, not sort of subtle, subtle and unsubtle, racism that deems Northern Sudan superior in culture and therefore uh, more worthy of research. Um, these, these dominant views have led to downplaying or denying the blatant racist meanings of the modern Sudanese state. It's also been a mystery to many scholars, observers, and human rights activists around the world why so much attention turned to Darfur when the longest running conflict on the continent has been between northern and southern Sudan. This conflict, which devastated, which we all know, around devastated people, culture, and the land of South Sudan, had many causes, including economic and political rationales that uh, other people dealt with far better than, than I can, Douglas Johnson, for example, people on our first panel, etc. Perhaps one of the most salient among the causes of the North-South conflict, however, was the expressed desire of successive Northern-dominated governments to impose Islamic, religious, and Arab cultural hegemony on the South. A variation of the same may be said about the struggle that the people of the Nuba Mountains, Sudan's southern Kordofan province, endured over decades, provoking one human rights organization to refer to the Nuba Mountains conflict as, quote, genocide by attrition. While it's not my intention to construct a worse tragedy hierarchy for Sudan's killing fields, nor to dilute the charges from several quarters that the current Darfur crisis is genocide, I would want to look uh, at the larger picture of Sudan's conflicts that, that highlights the historical continuity, the holistic and holistic nature of the country's various center-periphery conflicts. Obviously, one can't do that in a, in a big paper. Although several volumes on the subject of genocide have been published in the last few years,
spurred on by events in Bosnia, Rwanda, Congo, and Sudan, uh, namely Darfur. Uh, Alexander Hinton's 200, uh, 2002 work stands out. Hinton's reference to genocide as, quote, the dark side of modernity is one of the most striking statements in recent literature. The statement is perhaps especially useful to Sudanists, including me, who have interpreted the contemporary Islamist regime in Sudan as part and parcel of modernity. There is an irony, perhaps, in associating genocide with modernity, on the one hand, and with Islamism on the other. However, this irony, although arguably tangential to this paper, is diluted by the argument by some scholars that Islamism, for all its atavistic trappings, is a modernist movement. Olivier Roy, for example, maintained in 1994 that Islamism has more to do with nationalism than with religion, and I accept that. Like many scholars, Hinton equates modernity with secular forms of government which culminated in the nation state, but also private property and capitalist expansionism and all that these imply, in other words, commodification, industrialization, colonialism, etc. Salient is the <coughs> emphasis on the individual, on uh, empiricism, secularism, um, rationality, science, and progress. In the meta-narratives of so-called progress and so-called civilization that are so significant to the development of the dark side of modernity, leading to the physical annihilation of indigenous people of the irreversible destruction or alteration of their cultures. As Hinton states, quote, meta-narratives of modernity supply the terms by which indigenous people were constructed as the inverted image of civilized people. This particular strategy of constructing those who fit the inverted image of the other by colonials and later by the colonized who adopted their patterns, adapted their patterns, became an easy exercise in rationalizing various acts of violence against indigenous people. Sometimes the cleansing was carried out in the name of development, I'm putting all these terms in italics, or what Helen Fine refers to as utilitarian genocides. In the Sudan conflicts, which have arguably reached their most violent in the post-colonial period, the situation is somewhat more complex. I'm not analyzing a strictly colonial regime, regime that is subduing an indigenous population under its control as in an external or foreign military and or political power impinging or conquering, intervening, settling in, um, or controlling another nation state or sovereign territory. Rather, although it may be problematic to refer to indigenous versus state in the context of the various Sudan conflicts, the purpose of the of analysis I'm interpreting, sorry, for the purpose of analysis, I'm interpreting the Sudanese state as an entity, an amalgam primarily composed of particular northern Sudanese ethnic groups, the, um, in quotes, Arab slash Nubian ethnic complex, end of quote. That's actually my term from my dissertation, eons ago. Uh, this complex that's dominated successive uh, post-colonial governments both publicly through direct control over government 
and privately through preferential treatment by state bureaucracy and patronage. Conversely, I'm interpreting all of those outside the power of the state or government as ethnic and regional groups uh, as being on the modernity's edges, a relatively disenfranchised amalgam of indigenous groups standing in juxtaposition or opposition to the power amalgam of the state. And at least until recently, with the CPA, having little voice in national politics. At the same time, however, I recognize both of these uh, rather simplistic categorical constructs run the risk of totalizing or essentializing the various marginal and oppressed people in Sudan, and that the state, in italics, has been fluid and also cannot be totalized. The amalgam of the state expels the indigenous, that is the diaspora phenomenon, and fragments their ethnicity through forced assimilation, relocation, and marriage outside the group, rape, and enslavement, wars, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. To this point in the paper, I've been using the term genocide without definition because of the wide range both of definitions of genocide and of atrocities in the Sudan's killing fields. Definitions of genocide, we all know, range from conservatives such as the 1948 Convention on Genocide, uh, which is a legal understanding. Mod certain moderate approaches, such as Helen Fines, uh, or all-encompassing definitions, such as Leo Cooper's 1981-1994, in which he points out that ethnocide, that is cultural genocide, was discussed but excluded from the 1948 convention. Cooper includes uh, lesser movements uh, to eliminate in his, in his framework. Nevertheless, there are certain characteristics of genocide that most scholars agree on. That is systematic, sustained, and purposeful, and um, in the words of uh, Hinton, quote, characterized by the intention to annihilate the other. All the cases that I've been discussing in my work and that Laura Ben and I have included in our volume would easily fall under the rubric of political violence. I argue further, however, that Sudan's killing fields are much more than political violence, that the conflicts have ingredients that fulfill all or most of the characteristics most scholars have outlined for various forms of genocide, even if called by other names, such as ethnocide, genocidal massacres, ethnic cleansing, or gendercide, eliminating women or raping women or destroying women in one way or another. By contrast, war, and I put that in italics, as a concept does not carry within it the racism, misogyny, religious chauvinism, and class antagonisms that have been and still are extant in the Sudan, in Sudan's historical and ongoing center, periphery conflicts, particularly those in, in South Sudan and Darfur. The non-Arab and, and or non-Muslim people and cultures of the North, South, West, and East have been variously assaulted through direct state violence, state-supported private <coughs> violence, by malign neglect and attrition, or by utilitarian projects, such as the dams that culturally and economically devastated Nubia. The forms of direct and indirect assault have included forcible assimilation, 
uh, is forced Islamization and Arabization, driving people out, intentional starvation, forced displacement and relocation, indoctrination, rape and other gender assaults, uh, aerial bombardment, mother charades, enslavement, and malign neglect. These assaults on human dignity have been most evident in southern Sudan and the Nuba Mountains and more recently in Darfur. The fact that the warring parties to the North-South conflict, the SPLNA and the National Congress Party, achieved a peace settlement in 2005, and that the South Sudan seceded in 2011, well, do not render the study of genocide and war crimes irrelevant for several reasons. Although I'm sure many Northern Sudanese would just like to forget. First, despite the CPA, there were several instances of violence between the central government and its proxies and elements of the SPLMA, the dominant political party in the government of South Sudan. Second, the ongoing violence in Darfur added a significant degree of fragility to the North-South peace and then secession. Third, Sudan is on the verge of literal fragmentation. That is, in addition to the South's overwhelming vote for independence on January 9th. An understanding of the genocidal violence perpetrated against the Southern Sudanese by successive central governments may illuminate why secession of the South occurred and raise the question of why future reconciliation may be difficult at all levels. It may be more important than ever to establish a comprehensive record of the posterity of the numerous assaults against human dignity in the Sudan in the hope that such a record may facilitate ultimate reconciliation and peace among the two Sudans. Finally, the most important in the Sudanese context, genocide captures the group or collective and thus deeper existential aspects of the gross human rights abuses committed by the post-independent Sudanese state and its private uh, civilian proxies. Because it implicates group identity and collective existence, genocide is arguably an appropriate framework, both theoretically and ethically, within which to explore the possibility of reconstitution of the assaulted indigenous peripheral groups in the Sudan. Many of the Sudan's killing fields can easily be classified under ethnocide and or genocidal massacre, and also, in several instances, under gendercide. Leo Cooper's notion of domestic genocides, that is, genocides arising on the basis of internal divisions within a society, as opposed to genocides arising in the course of international warfare, is also apt in the Sudanese context. Genocide is a continuum. However, it's not always possible or indeed even useful to differentiate among these various forms of violence. Undoubtedly, the common feature of all the forms of violence we have seen in the former unified Sudan, um, or Sudan region, shall we say, and continuing in the present uh, northern Sudan and its peripheral areas is the, com is the complex dehumanization of the victims by the state and its various instruments of power and terror, such as the military, private militias, and the media. Well, let me conclude with a few remarks. In short, um, or maybe not in short, 
<laughs> because the concept of genocide implicates group identity and collective existence, as I said. Um, it may be the appropriate framework, both theoretically and ethically, within which to uh, continue to explore Zidane's killing fields. Uh, and may lead um, not to further animosities, but to the possibility of reconstruction um, of the fragmented assaulted indigenous peripheral groups. Any number of scholars and observers or activists would agree that regardless of whether or not we use the terminology genocide, I mean, it's just a word. Um, we're really talking about events. Um, so putting the word to the events is not the, is not the most important thing. Uh, but anyway, whether or not we use the term terminology genocide, Sedan's killing manifested a number of atrocities, killed many people, displaced even more, decimated material and symbolic culture, and are perpetuated either directly by the central government, whether colonial, parliamentary, or Islamist, none of them could be that off the hook, or an apparatus of that government, the various militias, or by the armed opposition groups founded to offset the atrocities. They can't be let off the hook either. These processes have taken place over many decades. The results of colonial interventions, competition for scarce resources, military interventions, power grabs, racism, and various forms of ethnic, religious, and gender chauvinism. What falls by the wayside, however, by using the umbrella of genocide, which is a very specific, grand-scale model um, and its related forms, what is lost in that sweep, in that model, is the everyday relentless racism, discrimination, and humiliation that marginalized people have had to tolerate and for which there has been little redress. Over the years, we've witnessed a total lack of anti-racism workshops. I've never heard of one, given in all my years of connection with Sudan. I could be wrong. I'd love to hear about one. Um, and also, there's been an absence even of the acknowledgement that racism has anything to do with the way Southerners, for example, feel about the North. And only really in recent days, in recent weeks, in recent months, perhaps, have I begun to hear people acknowledge the day-to-day -day racism. Um, so this perpetuates um, the chronic propensity towards violent animosities. Existential crises have been rampant. The lack of a sense of belonging and unstable citizenship and constant alienation. These cannot be resolved by a decision on how to divide the oil revenues or concentrating on drawing <coughs> direct boundaries. These are important. But not everything can be resolved in this, uh, at that level. Sudan has not had its truth and reconciliation moments. Most peace building and reconciliation activities have taken place at the institutional level and not at an individual level. You know, one of the, the um, legacies of slavery in the United States, uh, the reason why it continues to be a major factor in relations between African-Americans and, and white Americans, say, is the fact that up until very recently, there wasn't a full acknowledgement of slavery. And to this day, there have been no reparations for slavery. Um, 
although people can trace their descendants, we know very well who was, who was enslaved and so on. No reparations. As long as there are no reparations and no true apology, although there have been a couple of presidents who have mumbled a few words about um, slavery and how we're sorry. Um, until whites acknowledge their responsibility for that slavery. Whether we live during slavery or not, I am responsible for that slavery because I'm a part of what holds up the system that continues uh, without reparation. So only by naming the injustices at the institutional level and personal level, by pointing them out and by insisting on an acknowledgement from some of the perpetrators, will the two Sudans and the perpetual the uh, peripheral areas within the remaining land mass called Sudan be able to come to some terms with an indigenous past and and uh, I'm sorry, an inglorious past, and uh, move both countries and their marginalized populations into the future. The question is how to how to put these institutions into play, and I'm hoping that uh, some of our other panels will be able to uh, help creatively with some members of the audience. I'm sorry, this was such a grand presentation. I uh, actually earned my living for a very long time as a stand-up comic, uh, <laughs> which I know you don't believe, right? <laughs> uh, but um, it's true. Uh, but I, it's very hard to add a note of levity. And it's even very hard to add an optimistic note to, uh, to this portrait. But I think if we all work together, we come up with some institutions at a personal level that, uh, that might help the two uh, countries come together. Thank you. <laughs>